Hi, welcome to Lambert Park Church. Our vision is life with God for the world. Our mission is to invite everyone to follow Jesus with us through redemptive community, intentional discipleship, and everyday mission. We're so glad you're here. Stay tuned for the podcast coming right up. Living God, thank you for for your word. You are a God that speaks. All that we have sung today, all that we know of you, all that we have experienced of you comes because you have chosen to speak and by your word to make the world and sustain it. By your word to reveal yourself to us through the stories of Israel, the stories of the church, by your word to take on flesh and Jesus to teach and reveal the Father. So by your word, would you again speak your saving word, your creating, your renewing word among us today? Would you open us up to you? We need you, Jesus. We need you, Jesus. We say it together. We need you, Jesus. Open us up to you and would you speak? Amen. All right, if you are just joining us today, uh, whether... You are new to Lambrick or you've just been away for a bit. We are in a summer series called Steadfast Songs, A Journey Through the Psalms of Ascent. We've had the privilege of hearing from a number of others in our community over the last month. Uh, Did not Kate Smith, young Kate Smith, kill it last Sunday? Oh, man, so great. Um, And and others along the way. It's been such a gift, and there's more coming. Uh, But today you get me. Hey, thank you. No, 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 shush. Oh, yeah, okay, sorry. The shameless attempt at love. Um, uh, The Psalms of Ascent are a collection within the broader Psalter from Psalm 120 to 134, a collection of psalms that have historically been understood as psalms that were prayed, recited together by Jewish pilgrims as they would travel toward up to Jerusalem three times a year for the feasts. We see in Luke chapter two, verse 41, that Jesus himself in his childhood would travel with his family to Jerusalem for the feast. And in the gospels, we see Jesus himself every time there's a feast dropping or heading from wherever he is to Jerusalem. This was a part of the life of the people of Israel according to God's wisdom. And as each teacher in our series has mentioned, these Psalms function is not just a pilgrimage playlist that's enjoyable, oh, I love that song, but as an invitation into some vital steps in our discipleship, each of them their own ascent in this holy pilgrimage of our life with God, our discipleship to Jesus. It's not just one ascent, but each psalm represents its own ascent. So if you're actually looking at the psalms, the postscript before each of these psalms says, a song of ascents, plural, because each psalm is its own ascent. Each psalm its own step in our core discipleship, drawing all the disparate parts of our lives into a life with God. And today's psalm, Psalm 127, involves another vital step in our discipleship. So I want us to begin by simply hearing this psalm together through a responsive reading, okay? And I wanna say right off the top that there are some aspects of this psalm that might distract you. You might get stuck. 
You might stop listening. Some parts that might frustrate you, stir up thoughts, feelings, reactions, as scripture often does. It did for me when I first opened up this psalm. And I don't promise to resolve all of the tensions that some of us might feel, but I do hope to clear up some that I think are unnecessary this morning as we go. Because as I've experienced this very week, even in the last, I'd say, 12 hours, we need this psalm. We need what God is saying in Psalm 127, and maybe especially right now, right in the middle of July. So let's read and hear this psalm together. Can I invite you to stand for the reading of God's word? I'm gonna read the normal font, and you can join in for the bold and italicized words. It's obvious, but if you make a mistake, it's okay, it happens to me. I totally blundered while we were singing. I sang the wrong verse. I looked up. I sang a different thing. You can do that too, but let's join in. Psalm 127, I'm reading, this is from the NIV. The postscript says, A Song of Ascents of Solomon. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards stand watch in vain. In vain you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat for he grants sleep to those he loves. Children are a heritage from the Lord, offspring a reward from him. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are children born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be put to shame when they contend with their opponents in court. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Now, before we dive into the psalm and its wisdom and invitation, I want to simply acknowledge a few of the parts that might have snagged some of us, parts that might have felt jarring or it maybe caused us to feel like this psalm doesn't get us or it. Uh, five kind of stood out to me. First, the idea in verse one that apart from God, all our work is in vain. Is the psalmist implying saying that our work, apart from God, is useless, a total waste of our time, undestined to fruitlessness. I could see how someone could conclude that from reading that verse. Verse two, the claim that God gives sleep to those he loves. I hardly slept last night. Does that mean God does not love me? And I'm not exaggerating. I hardly slept last night. I hardly slept this week. That's a story for others maybe later. We'll see. But according to the psalm, does the psalmist, is the psalmist saying that God doesn't love me or you or us? I could see how someone could deduce that. Uh, third, verse three, there's this shift, pivots to talking about children being a heritage from the Lord. It almost feels like a whole new psalm. So much so that this week at our staff meeting on Tuesday, I read this psalm out loud as we went into prayer, and when we got to the end of verse two, I stopped. I didn't read the rest of the psalm, because it felt like without more comment, it felt like a whole different psalm. Some of you might feel that way. Fourth, in the last verse, the language is all predominantly male, especially if you're reading a more literal translation like the ESV or the NRSV. It speaks of fathers and sons and the blessing of being a father with many sons. Awesome, but how does that speak to the rest of us? 
And not just women, but also men that aren't fathers or who don't have sons or a full quiver of them. What if I just got two or one? Some extra space in my quiver. <laughs> At which connects to the fifth snag, last snag in the psalm, this reference in verse five to not being put to shame in the midst of a verse that causes some to feel shame. So as we enter the psalm today, I just want to acknowledge that for me, as I entered this psalm, I found myself caught with some questions, gut reactions that I've been processing through in myself and for the sake of others that I love as I've studied and lived with and prayed through this psalm this week, which can feel challenging and can cause some to say, well, forget about Psalm 127. What's on Psalm 128? But no, questions are good. They pull us, they can pull us into the text. And it, that's what it's been for me, pulling, pushing, and pulling me into the text beyond my initial gut reactions and pastoral concerns in the conviction that all Scripture is God-breathed, which means that this psalm, Psalm 127, isn't just a misguided journal entry or an amateur attempt at liturgical poetry that somehow snuck its way into the Bible. But this psalm, though written by a fellow pilgrim, was and is inspired by God, the God who speaks the God who by his word creates and redeems and restores and saves, which means that the very, this psalm is the very means of God's, in all of his wisdom and goodness, God's inspiration of us. God intends to breathe out his revelation and his grace through his word to us. So with that in mind, I dug in this week, and with that in mind, I invite us to do so together. And along the way, we'll explore some of those stuck points. So first of all, it's helpful to know that this psalm doesn't stand alone, but is located not only in the Psalms of Ascent, but within a triad of psalms within the Psalms of Ascent. Actually, all of the Psalms of Ascent are built in triads. The first three, the next three, they're all built in triads, and often, most often, each of those triads has a common theme. And the common theme of Psalm 126, 127, today's psalm, and 128 is work. Something that touches every one of our lives, our everyday work, whatever that work is, whether it's paid or unpaid, passion or just paying the bills, our work. We heard it last week, Psalm 126, which Kate wonderfully expounded. Verse five and six said, those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out reaping, carrying seed to sow as you work, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. The next verse, or the, the verse from next week, Psalm 128, verse two says, you will eat the fruit of your labor. And today, the overwhelming emphasis of our Psalm 127 is work, our daily work. The work of our days, our weeks, our lives. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards stand watch in vain. Which might feel, feels to me like a theme that we need at this point in July, at this point in the summer. With some of us just back from having been off or away or both, I was one of those, or heading off soon, in between, or some of us feeling like we are never going to get a break forever looking out the window at a summer that we are afraid is going to pass us by. 
I've had those summers. Maybe you have too. Whatever the case, it is a gift to realize and remember or be reminded that our ordinary work, the work of our everyday lives is not a curse, nor is it a necessary but otherwise secular, God-irrelevant investment of our days, and for that, a pretty big investment, right? Whether you're talking about your schoolwork, or your office work, or your teamwork, or whatever it is, your house, your family, your grandparenting, whatever it is. Now, according to this psalm, in concert with the whole of the Bible, our daily work is integral to a life with God, the, a, a primary place for faith. Which is why we need this psalm in July, because let's be honest, don't we often think and live as though pursuing God is something we do when life pauses? It's something we do in the gaps, in the gaps of our real life. And maybe specifically, maybe especially, when our work pauses or is finally done. Then, then on our lunch break or after work or on the weekend or at the beach, Haystacks, Portland, or on that drive or on that long ride, then we can finally pray, worship, draw near to God. Or maybe not in those places, because let's be honest, maybe some of us have done those things and we didn't find ourselves praying. Maybe at least at church, when we've left our work behind and at least at church, when we gather with others, then we can seek God. We get to, get to. I don't have the luxury, Scott. I'm not a pastor. I'm not paid to just pray all day and linger with Jesus. <laughs> As if, anyways. But right, we feel that way. I don't have the luxury. I don't get to. I have to this. I have payroll to deal with. I have that person to deal with. I have these 19,000 projects to handle. I don't get to. And sadly for some of us, it feels like we never get there because the work never seems to be done, right? It's Saturday, we're still working. It's Sunday, Sabbath, we're heading home to work on a project. Which is why we need this psalm. Well, we need to hear what God is saying in this psalm because here in Psalm 127, God invites us into the grace of knowing that our work, our work life, is not the necessary but otherwise secular block of our days or weeks or lives, but is an integral place of faith. Our life with God, our devotion to God of seeking and honoring, obeying and worshiping, or at least it can be, right? Think about this for a moment. When, it come, when someone says to you, oh, I was doing my devotions, what are you picturing? Probably some like religious version of hugue, isn't that the word? <laughs> some religious version of this, so maybe not like a phone in hand, but a big, large, leisurely, leather-bound Bible, right? Someone by themselves in a quiet place, unhurried, in a comfortable perch, likely with a hot cup of something in hand, undistracted, unavailable, completely at ease. If you go online to unsplash.com where everybody sources their images for their sermons or their websites or whatever, and you type in the theme word devotions, all you'll find is women sitting on logs with an open Bible at the beach. <laughs> That's it. Or maybe at a coffee shop with a cup of coffee curated like an Instagram post 
and an open Bible and an empty journal with a perfect pen sitting there, right? Doing your devotions. Or when we think of that, that's what we're picturing or that's what we're wishing we were experiencing. And yet in virtually every letter of the Apostle Paul, he speaks of our work lives as a primary expression of our devotion. An essential part of doing your devotions. Have you ever said to someone, ah, I wish I had time to do my devotions. I just have to work, I gotta work today. Lucky you. Why, why is this the case? Why is this, according to the Bible, an integral place of doing our devotions? Why, because God himself is a worker. God works. This is what Psalm 127 is all about from start to finish. Not first and foremost our work, but God's work. I've taught on this topic before. I'm not gonna repeat my sermon from last fall, but if you want, I did a whole teaching on faith at work last uh, fall, and I'll let you hunt there, and I'll be done. Just kidding. Um, But from the very first line of Psalm 127, we are invited to realize and reimagine our work in the light of the reality that our God is a God who works, which might not seem like a significant thought or idea. Isn't it just basic? If God is God... God can do anything, right? Yes, absolutely. But in the ancient world of the Israelites from which we receive the Psalms, this is one of the things that the gods of the ancient world were not known for. This was a countercultural idea. As we talked about before, one of the common features of the cosmology of the ancient world is that the gods were lazy. Powerful, but lazy, which is why, for most of them, according to their own literature, why they created humans, so that humans would do the work for them, that humans would make a meal and put it on the altar so they don't have to make a meal, that humans would do the work for them so they don't have to do the work. This is the story of so many of the ancient religions of our world and some today, too. But right from the opening page of the Bible, Genesis 1, God reveals himself as a God who works and who delights in his work, who is committed to his work with joy, and who creates us not to be God's slaves, but to be God's partners, to co-labor with God in his ongoing cultivation, care for and cultivation of creation. This is what the Bible teaches. This is what Psalm 127 boldly declares. And not just for our reflection, but as an invitation to each of us to reimagine and reframe how we engage in our daily work, whatever it is, whatever it is. And I mean that. This psalm really does not focus on the what of holy work, but the how. Not on what kind of work is holy, as though there is only a few things that are considered holy work, but on how Any kind of work, every kind of work can be holy unto the Lord for his glory and the good of the world, an act of devotion, nine to five, or whenever your shift runs. Now, the most basic level, as we crack into the psalm, at the most basic level, this psalm, the wisdom of this psalm comes to us by way of a warning, two warnings, actually, and an example which helps connect and make sense of the whole of the psalm it has for me. I hope you'll feel that as we get into this. First, it starts with a warning, two warnings. 
Two warnings that are both rooted in a denial of God's work in our daily lives. Both signs that we have believed a lie that we alone are the workers. God is up in heaven. Yes, he worked at the start, got it going, but he's given us work, better do it. Both of these warnings are rooted in naming a lie. That your work is just your work. That my work is just my work. Better get at it. That's all there is. Nothing will happen except what you can produce. Listen again to the first verses of this psalm. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards stand watch in vain. Now we need to clarify that this psalm isn't claiming that work done independent of God is useless, pointless, or destined to utter, utter fruitlessness because the second verse refutes that. It tells us, in vain you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to sleep. Sorry, food to eat, pardon me. The ESV or the NRSV offer a better translation of this verse. They translate it, in vain you rise early and stay up late, eating the bread of anxious toil. So there is bread to be eaten. For those who labor, oblivious to God's work, in defiance of God's work, there is still bread to be eaten. There are millions, billions of people today working right now, independent of God, oblivious to God's work or in defiance of God's work, who will eat because they work. Maybe you're doing good work. That's not the point of this psalm. The point is not that our work is useless, but that our work is always dependent on God's work, on God's ongoing work. Some of us live our faith today as though God has stopped working in this world. God, at one point, loved the world, was so intimately involved in it, he created bananas and animals, things of beauty, delighted over them, but today, he's just waiting for it all to end. No. God is at work, and we are called to understand that our work is dependent on God's work, that more than any of us, God is the provider, the teacher, the parent, the surgeon, the protector, the wise counselor, the good shepherd, and more. Not that our work is useless, it is not, it is vital, but we are, have been created to work, not in isolation, not on our own, not in denial of God's work, that all there is is our work, and all that is needed is our work. We've been created to work in dependence upon God, in partnership with God. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards stand watch in vain. Think with me about the story of the tower, the building of the Tower of Babel, Genesis 11. All of the skill and brilliance and capacities and, and ambition of a nation, of a generation coming together, rallying together to build a city and a tower for themselves apart from the creator God for the sake of their own name. Let us build the tower and make a name for ourselves and what comes of it? Nothing, <laughs> nothing, because they sought to live and work apart from God, cut off from the work of God. So that's the first warning in this, a warning against God-defiant, God-denying overconfidence. I got this. This is just my work. I don't need God for this. 
My work is all there is and it's all that's needed. So I want you to pause for a second. I want us to pause here for a second and just consider in what ways are you prone towards overconfidence in your daily work before God? In what ways are you prone to working independent of God, seeing your work as just your work, that your work is all there is and all that is needed? Take a moment and hear this opening line with your own work in it. Unless the Lord, what? Unless the Lord sells the house or the painting. My wife was at the painting yesterday. Unless the Lord teaches the students, unless the Lord develops the plan, unless the, the Lord turns the heart of the addict, unless the Lord, what is it? Hear this verse with your work in it, and not as a fearful pondering, but as an invitation to reimagine and re-engage your work as a daily partnership with God, as a place where you are invited to walk by faith. An invitation from God that I have written at the open page of almost every one of my workbooks in the last five years and at first page of my journal for a bunch of years now. Someone, when I came to Lambrick, someone from my last church sent me an email saying they've been praying for me and in that prayer time, it's like God whispered a word to them for me and the word was Jesus saying, take my hand. Let's do this together. Take my hand. Let's do this together. So second, the psalmist warns us against a different God denial, a God denial expressed in overwork, rooted in anxiety. As the psalmist so powerfully says in verse two, in vain you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat, or as the more literal translation reads, eating the bread of anxious toil. When I came across that translation, I just felt named. There's me, time to pull up my journal, talk about my life with Jesus. Eating the bread of anxious toil. If I'm honest, this is so often where I end up as a dad, but even more so as a pastor, which might seem crazy since if there ever was a line of work where you'd expect God's partnership, most of us would probably put pastor at the top of the list, right? And yet so easily I can end up working, leading, planning, counseling, preparing sermons, engaging in whatever conversation it is with the board, with our finance, with whatever, as though it's all up to me, which often makes me, tempts me toward overwork. I was so thankful, I was off the last two weeks and at the very end of our two weeks off, we had people come stay with us that I love. And it was such a gift because on a normal last two days of holiday, my brain starts thinking towards re-entering work, my anxiety starts going up, I start sleeping worse and my phone keeps saying, calm down, calm down. Because <laughs> your heart rate's going up or whatever it is, right? And it was such a gift to have them there because that, I can look towards and I feel like, oh, I gotta do it all, I gotta make it happen. Kate did such a good job last week, I better kill it, because I'm paid to be a pastor and a preacher. <laughs> Whoa, and she's what, 18? Come on. 
And yet so easily I can end up working, leading, counseling, planning, preparing, praying, uh, preparing sermons as though it's all up to me, which tends to pull me towards, tempt me towards overwork. In a way, without realizing it, I feel like I have rewritten verse one of this psalm so many times. If you ever run into the SATV, Scott's Anxious Toiling Version, I would not recommend buying this Bible. It is a bad translation, it's exhausting. But it plays in my head all the time. It reads, as long as I can do it perfectly, it's worth it, and I'll be fruitful, and then I can rest. So I should probably work a bit longer. Psalm 127, verse one, SATV. That's how I hear it in my heart. How do you hear it in your heart? What is the anxious inner motto that exhausts you in your work? That tells you what you have to get done before you have earned the privilege to rest. Do you ever feel that way? That rest is a privilege that you hope you might earn? That's where the last line of verse two becomes a word of life, I think, for us, for all of us. It says, for he grants sleep to those he loves. And I say that as someone who teetered at the edge of sleep all night, but never. I know I mentioned this verse at the start as a sticking point, the terrifying implication that if I'm struggling to sleep these nights, and I am, it's because God doesn't love me. And as much as this is an understandable conclusion, when we read a verse on its own, disconnected from the rest of the story, there are two things that steer me away from this, and I'm thankful for them. First of all, this psalm comes to us commonly regarded as wisdom, a wisdom psalm. It's a genre of biblical literature, wisdom literature, as opposed to a thanksgiving psalm or a remembrance psalm or a lament psalm. And when we read wisdom literature in the Bible, the book of Proverbs is and completely that, we need to keep in mind that wisdom sayings are not promises or guarantees. They are wise counsel, inviting us into the common path of wise action, what can often be expected, but not a rule, a law, a promise, a guarantee. And second, with that, I am encouraged by the fact that there are times in the Gospels where Jesus stays up all night doesn't seem to sleep. And he's the beloved of the Father, okay? So I think there are other times where other things going, are going on. For me, I think it's my hypothyroidism, but that's not a sermon, that's a lecture maybe, secondary conversation about the meds I take and a recent change. The point of this verse, the grace of it, isn't a promise of sleep, but it is an announcement that rest isn't something we have to earn. It is God's gift to us in love with no regard for what we've accomplished. It is a reality open to us because God is at work now and always. As Psalm 121, which Aaron took us into a few weeks back, told us, the Lord, God, never sleeps, never slumbers, so we can. Once a week, for sure. And at the end of every day, God has made us to put it down, maybe not the Bible, put it down and receive rest knowing that God is at work. And so for me, as I teetered at the edge of not sleeping last night, in the mercy of God, this psalm was in my heart inviting me to say, it's okay, I'm okay. 
Because God is at work. And he'll give me what I need to stand in front of you. God never sleeps, never slumbers, so we can. Not because we've earned it, but because he is at work. And he loves us. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards stand watch in vain. In vain you rise early. I'm sure some people have, that's like a, a, a line of a sentence you've memorized. Children, you know, who say, Dad, it says in the Bible, in vain you rise early and stay up late, a parent might say, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he grants sleep to those he loves. And now finally we come to the second half of this verse, the final section. We've considered the first two warnings against God defying overconfidence and God denying overwork, rooted anxiety. And then we come to the psalmist inviting us to consider an example of the grace of partnering with God in the work of our lives. And I'll be honest, I've never appreciated this second half of the psalm until this week as a part of this psalm, until others, wise Bible scholars, help me understand how this psalm is built with a warning and an example but especially Eugene Peterson and his reflections on this and his book, Long Obedience in the Same Direction, hugely helped me. So I'm just gonna quote him today. But first, I'll read it for us. Verse three to five, he says, children are a heritage from the Lord, offspring a reward from him. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are children born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be put to shame when they contend with their opponent in court. As I've already mentioned, rather than being a dramatic shift toward an entirely new topic, the latter part of the psalm offers an undeniable example of how this God-dependent work, this partnership with God in the work of our lives looks like and means. And I love how Eugene Peterson explains it. He says, the example could not have been better chosen. What do we do to get sons and daughters? Some of you should smile. Very little. The entire miracle of procreation and reproduction requires our participation, but hardly in the form of what we call work. We did not make these marvelous creatures that walk and talk and grow among us. Your parents did not make you. We participated in an act of love that was provided for us in the structure of God's creation. I resonate with this so deeply, not only as someone who has two growing children, but as someone who, between the birth of our two children, experienced the undeniable reality that getting pregnant and carrying to term are not up to me or us, are not in my hands, our hands at all. It is not something any of us can simply choose to do though sometimes it feels like that. None of us can make a baby. None of us can. As Peterson wisely states, we cannot make, we did not make these marvelous creatures that walk and talk and grow among us. We participated in an act of love that was provided for us in the structure of God's creation. This, according to the psalmist, is a picture, just one, of how we are invited to participate with God in our daily work, our given work, whether paid or unpaid, whether passion or just paying the bills. We are invited to participate in faith. 
We are invited to do the things that we can do in daily, active, wholehearted, living dependence on God to do what only God can do in us and through us. This is the essential ascent of Psalm 127. An ascent we are all called to make, to learn and live, to see our work, to embrace, to learn to live and do our work as a participation with God, as a mysterious act of participation with a God whose work is always prior and greater. All right, so let me close by briefly talking one final stuck point that I named at the start, and it's one we find at the end. As many Bible scholars will point out, and I'm sure many of us realize, in the ancient, the culture of Solomon's day, a large family, especially of sons, was a kind of insurance against poverty and exploitation of, in old age. But in the New Testament, we don't often talk about this, we have a bit this year, but we know this if we pay attention to the New Testament. In the New Testament, the primary emphasis and command for the people of God isn't make babies, but make disciples. The Old Testament is full of stories of single people going to wells to find a spouse. Like you could map out the Old Testament built around the pursuit of a spouse, the prayer, the ache for offspring, which are all natural things we all, many of us, long for these things. And yet in the New Testament, I don't know if there's a single story about this. The stories are all about a call into community to follow Jesus and make disciples. And how in that process, we build family in Christ. The beauty, the joy, the protection, the shame-removing blessing that the psalmist sees in the gift of family and offspring in Christ is translated into the grace and the blessing and the protection and the joy, the shame-removing blessing of the family of God where we are invited to embrace our roles, all of us as sons and daughters of the people right around us, brothers and sisters, not only right here, but people across the world in Chisinau, Moldova, and those who fled from Ukraine who are living now in small gatherings, big gatherings, aching for restoration. These are our brothers and our sisters in Christ. They're not just that family. In Christ, as we follow him together, we become family. Sons and daughters, brothers and sisters, fathers and mothers of one another. As we offer up our lives, our work, our nine to five, or whatever your shift is, in dependence upon God, for him to do what only he can do in and through us, not only for us, but for all. That's God's vision. So, why did God bring you here today? Why did you need to hear this meditation on Psalm 127 today? Where in your life is God saying, stop working like the devil, take my hand, let's do this together? Where do you need to hear that today? And in faith, say yes. Let's pray. Thank you, God. Father, Jesus, Holy Spirit, for your love for us enough to speak 
through Psalm 127, something that's so common, so real, so, so many hours of our day and so many hours of our, our thoughts, our minds, our anxieties, our wrestling, so much of what gets pulled into our prayer or maybe we leave out because we feel it's just that thing and yet here you in grace open up another part of our lives and say, all right, let's draw that in. Over here, follow me here. Let me meet you here. Let me teach you here. Let me walk with you here. Thank you, God, for your word to us today. Help us in faith today to discern our yes. Amen.